edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. Typically, on a Thursday night, it would just be Allie and I having a couple drinks and talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Dr. Elizabeth Griffith. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. Dr. Griffith is a professor of women's history who's here to talk with us about her latest book, Formidable, American Women and the Fight for Equality, 1920 to 2020. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a woman who spent her entire career related to um, advancing women's rights. I began as an activist in Washington, um, marching and working for the Equal Rights Amendment, trying to elect women candidates. I worked closely with the Women's Political Caucus and the Women's Campaign Fund, which was a precursor of Emily's List. Then I started um, writing Women's History, a biography of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, teaching women's history. Uh, It's really been, I think my passion for women's history has drawn all the pieces of my career together. Even when I was a school administrator, I was always trying to teach. And so now I'm still teaching. I teach adults at the Smithsonian at an independent bookstore in Washington, D.C., where I live. Perfect. Mm, Well, we're so happy to have you because we're pretty close, actually. We're up in Baltimore, so we spend a lot of time in D.C. Mm -hmm. Love Baltimore. (laughs) So before we get into your book, we have to get into your cocktail. Um, So it's obviously called Formidable. Um, So we wanted to create something just really fun and fruit forward. Um, This one is a little bit more based in the season because it's summertime here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It is raspberry vodka, strawberry liqueur, lime juice, and you top the whole thing off with tonic, just something really nice and refreshing. So cheers to your book. To to you too. Thank you for the toast. That sounds just as strong and sassy as the women that I'm writing about. Exactly. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it would also be great to sit around at like a brunch. Oh, yeah. For sure. To talk about women's history. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's jump into talking about your book. So first, can you set the scene for us? I know that it's taking place o- over a century, but can you set the scene for like what that century looks like for women's history. Yes, thanks. So my book begins on August 26, 1920, when the 19th Amendment becomes part of the Constitution. And it ends in October 2020 with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. And that's sort of uh, for women like me, for feminists, uh, sort of from celebration to despair, could... um, represent the arc of women's history. It's up and down all the time. Mm -hmm. There have been huge successes and considerable setbacks. It has always been a long, hard fight. I wanted to cover this century because so much attention has been paid both in the field of women's history and in the last couple of years with the centennial of women getting the vote. So we got the vote. We fought really hard. This was not given to us. This was a struggle of... um, you could say almost a century of struggle to get uh, the right the right to vote. And I wanted to explore what women did once they got the vote. And I wanted to explore what all women were doing with it because the 19th Amendment did um, enfranchise all white and all black women in America. Black women's voting rights were not protected so that while they had the right to vote, they didn't necessarily um, have the freedom to use it. Native American women, um, Asian Asian women, immigrant women, women married to foreigners, 
uh, uh, whole classes of other women had to continue to fight to get the right to vote as black women had to continue to fight to have their vote safeguarded. So uh, while we, but it, but it was a starting point because the vote began to give women more political authority and agency than they had before. And we'd be even worse shape if we didn't have it now because it's one of the tools we can use. Um, so that my starting point was to say, was to look at um, what women did once they got the vote, who the change agents were, and to be as respectful and inclusive as I could of all different kinds of women, including the women who opposed um, the rights that I, for example, might have advocated during that time, because women are a hugely diverse cohort, and it is very hard um, to generalize women this, women that. You need to be able to tell multiple stories. So this book is packed with lots of stories and a bunch of formidable women, the most <laughs> colorful characters, some of whom couldn't stand each other's guts, some of whom were <laughs> devoted allies, um, uh, and but but sort of these fights were so long and hard that they just kept at it. They are so admirable because these women did not give up. Uh, and it's especially admirable, I think, among less privileged women whose fighting was behind the scenes or uh, physically dangerous, uh, high-risk enterprise. Yeah. Well, and I think it's great because one of the things that, one of the lines that really struck me in the book was you said, the 19th Amendment was not a complete victory it left out so many people and I think that's what your book does so beautifully is it kind of talks about those players so I mean there was one word that you used to have never heard of before it was um nativism and you were talking about this woman named Marie Louise Louise Fontenot Baldwin <laughs> so I just want to get into like maybe even just her story and can you tell us a little bit about her and what she was doing early on for Native American women's rights well, um, uh, Native women, well, let's put it in the whole context. Mm -hmm. Native Americans, obviously first citizens, <laughs> never had citizenship in this country mm -hmm. until 1924. They, and even once, there's a difference between citizenship and voting rights. You can be a citizen and still not have voting rights. So the first action that um, Botno and another friend, Zikala saw, they were allies in this, uh, although many women participated, um, was to get citizenship for Native Americans. And then it's not until after the Second World War that they get guaranteed voting rights. And that's, again, state by state. So there are states that do not guarantee Native voting rights until the 60s and 70s. And because of the way today that people register to vote, where you have to use a street address, and if people are living on um, reservations, they don't have street addresses. Uh, this could be remedied by people using GPS or whatever, but the government is not facilitating that. So Marie-Louise Botno baldwin um, comes to Washington uh, with her father in the um, 1890s, 1900s, uh, to uh, argue for, for treaty rights, um, that uh, treaties have been, of course, broken and broken, and they've come to argue with the government. And she goes to law school um, to uh, advance her um, skills in, in becoming a lobbyist. She participates in the suffrage campaigns, uh, and she works with um, organizations of Native American women to pass this 1924 Native Citizenship Law. And then it's... Um, this is something I learned. Native American men are the most highly represented proportionally um, 
members of the military in our country in the First World War and the Second World War. And when they, and not unlike black men who fought in our wars, come back and expect to be treated better. I've fought for my country. I'm a citizen. I've been a veteran. I deserve better. And they aren't treated any better, sometimes worse. But um, it was Native men uh, trying to vote in Arizona and uh, New Mexico, two different cases that led to the Supreme Court saying, absolutely, we can no longer, um, one case was said that because um, Native Americans living on reservations do not pay some kinds of taxes, if they weren't paying taxes and they weren't citizens, they did not pay property taxes, but they paid gas taxes and grocery taxes and all the other kinds of taxes, so they wiped that out. And another longstanding rule was that um, Native Americans, men and women, were um, were classed with the ch- with children that they were treated as infants and guardians of the state, and that was tossed out. And the person who tossed it out was a, a, a state Supreme Court justice named Udall, and it's his grandsons, who names you might recognize, who were in the House and the Senate from several Western states because the family spread out. But they have just recently submitted an, uh, a new Native American voting rights bill. So these issues take a long time to resolve and people working on it generation after generation. But that's a good example, Katie. Thanks for raising her because, um, I mean, I have a PhD in American history and I've been teaching women's history for my adult life and I was learning about more people all the time. Yeah, yeah. I think one that we all know about really well and who we all love, of course, is Eleanor Roosevelt. And you have a chapter called The Eleanor Effect. Can you tell us a little bit about what you posited in the book of what Eleanor did for American women? Well, Eleanor, of course, is sensationalist no matter. So no wonder so many of us take her as a role model. Uh, When I was teaching, I I led a girls' school. And um, I always used to talk about her in assemblies because Eleanor had a really rotten childhood. And, uh, you know, neglected, a privileged daughter, a privileged daughter, Teddy Roosevelt's niece from a famous New York family. And she's treated so badly by all of her relatives. And then she gets shipped off to a girls school with a fabulous headmistress who says you can be anything. And, and she um, comes into her own as a capable young woman, so that when she meets Franklin Roosevelt, she not only has all the debutante credentials, but she's working in tenements in um, the Lower East Side of New York doing social work and trying to improve um, poor and immigrant women's lives. But then she falls into sort of the the married woman's responsibilities of that era, totally intimidated by mother-in-law, many children, husband has an affair, all of that is known. When by the 1920s, when he's defeated um, running for vice president and has the polio, then she finally comes into her own. And in addition to sort of the political credentials, I love that she created this female friendship network of political cronies who were going to really um, guide her and educate her. And then she would become their leader because she had such ties. She is the most powerful Democratic volunteer factor um, in the country in the late 1920s throughout the, for the, and then for the rest of her life. But even as first lady, even as a person who was able to influence her husband to appoint many women to positions, to take up policies that were going to benefit women, to do more, especially for African-Americans and especially for Jewish Holocaust victims. She really did not have the power that she would accrue later. Um, as, a, as I mean, she's really an early influencer. But this is a lesson, I think, of the book. 
that for a long time, women only had power through men. They did not have personal agency. Um, all the, during the suffrage fight, women did not have political power. They didn't have the vote themselves. They only got it when enough states had granted women suffrage. Women win the vote in 1920 because women are voting already in 19 states. And the representatives of those states figure out that they need to vote for suffrage. So it's having power that gets women power. So, but in that era, you didn't have, you didn't have your own money. You didn't have political power. You didn't have personal agency. So women relied on moral authority and Eleanor had tons. And then she had this political network, which was very effective. But she becomes in her widowhood, in her roles in the United Nations, in her role as a, as a hugely respected kingmaker in the Democratic Party, um, she has enormous influence on the direction of the Democratic Party. And that, um, that in the long term benefits women because, as people will learn in the book, um, the Democrats were not initially in favor of things like the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, and they change sides. And it's interesting because we're talking about one of the big themes of the book is, you know, yes, we get the vote. And then what do we do next? And the other thing you have to do is get women in politics so that other laws that are adversely affecting them are, can be changed from the inside out. And Katie, there- you have to get them to vote. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is um, it is so frustrating, but it proves uh, my thesis again that, that mm-hmm. uh, men in 1920, after the 19, well, first for the 1920 elections, they were so anxious about what women were going to do <laughs> that Warren Harding, who wins the Republican um, nomination and then the presidency, he has this fabulous um, platform for women. He wa- he is in he's uh, advocating more things than the League of Women Voters gave him as a sample platform. And if without his backing, several of the early initiatives between 1920. And when he dies um, before the 24 election, they never would have passed without him. But the reason he was clearly a a, a significant factor in his being Mm -hmm. pro-women, as he always said, pro-respectable women, uh, was that that he thought they were going to vote for Republicans, that he could sway them all into the Republican Party. But then women don't vote. They don't vote in large numbers in 1920, 1922. And when they do not show up much in 1924, male politicians say, we don't need to worry about them anymore and stop paying attention to the lobbyists and reverse some of the um, first initiatives that women were successful in passing, having a lot to do with maternal and infant health, which is another theme in this hundred years of history, how neglectful we have been. Um, And women were not voting... um, for understandable reasons, mm-hmm. uh, they they were not encouraged to vote by the people they were living with. It looked like hostile territory, even though they moved voting booths from saloons and barbershops. They moved them to schools and fire stations, and you could no longer smoke or drink or swear or spit in voting booths. Still, it did not feel they they did not feel welcomed into those environments. So you had to really work up your nerve to go vote. And in many places, the same rules that would have kept Black men and women from voting, poll taxes also applied to poor families. So if you're a poor white family, you can't afford a $10 poll tax any more than an African-American family could. Slightly better, but not not a lot. So so there are lots of reasons for women not to vote. Um, And it takes them a long time. On the 10th anniversary of suffrage voting, there are all these news of suffrage passing. 
there are all these newspaper articles, you know, did the 19th Amendment fail? Have women done anything? This is, you know, they've just um, fallen on their faces during, during the decade of the 20s. So um, it took a long time for women to figure out that they needed to vote and, have, and to understand the connection between their voting and benefits to them. Mm-hmm. And I would also love to ask about one more woman, because sometimes it's a little disheartening when a woman gets voted in, like the book ends with Amy Coney Barrett, <laughs> and you're a little disappointed that they're in power. But there's another woman, Rebecca Latimer Felton, who served, oh. what is it, one day in the Senate, and she's has is a slave owner, is an anti-Semite. I mean, what do we do when it's a woman like that who doesn't represent the better future? Um, it is true. So Rebecca, so several women who are the, who serve in the Congress in the 1920s were appointed to fill seats for brief periods of time. Governors had the right to do that. And it was a way for governors to win um, the sympathy of other women voters by saying, I supported a woman, I put her in this position mm-hmm. for like two weeks. And in yeah. Rebecca <laughs> Felton's case, for 24 hours. Um, so she was she was a Southerner, she was a racist, she was pro-lynching, but she had also been pro-suffrage. Now it's true she was pro-white suffrage mm-hmm. in Georgia, um, and it was a white governor who appointed her. Um, and to Rebecca Felton's credit, <laughs> which is hard to me to say <laughs> trying to be judicious she i mean she did use her one her 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 one vote and her maiden speech on um, her maiden and valedictory speech um on the senate floor to say um that that in the future there will be many women and you will have reason to respect them and they will they will play a significant role in the government of the country but she was a woman of her times and this is, if you'll allow me, this is a challenging um, issue for people writing history today, mm-hmm. because we are so aware of how righteous we are, <laughs> and we are so judgmental about other people in the past. And I think one of the responsibilities of a historian is to um, put people in enough of a context that you may be exactly right in your judgment that this was a horrible person. This person's judgment was disaster and their behavior was horrible and hurtful. But I also think you have to put them in their time set. I believe that I believe in history as uh, the story of human beings, that human beings are flawed and that somebody can do, you know, can do some miserable things, but there are opportunities for redemption. Many historical characters were one thing and then recovered and were something else. And I um, would be too anxious about my own historic reputation 100 years from now. What are people going to think that we ignored entirely that we're not aware of? Um, So I think you need to call people out, as I tried to do in this book, for their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, I tried not to whitewash anybody. Mm-hmm. And I did, but I did on occasion suggest that there might have been, un, you might in that situation understand what the factors were that prompted somebody to behave that way. Um, I hate that the suffragists in making their final campaign um, to get the vote uh, uh, became increasingly conservative, mm-hmm. um, increasingly nativist, increasingly um, white supremacist. Um, uh, 
increasingly difficult. But in terms of real politic, had they done anything else when you were appealing to um, the Senate from 1913 on, dominated by Southerners? Mm-hmm. You, it barely passed in the Senate. And better to have it pass and then use it than not have it pass, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, right. um, but I also think that the best campaign run during that time was the 1915, which wasn't even the one that won, the 1915 state campaign in New York, which was then repeated in 1917. And winning in New York State, the largest state at that time, most important state at that time, that was a multicultural, um, biracial, uh, pamphlets in every language, huge um, strategic campaign hitting every neighborhood with the messages you wanted to hear and the languages you wanted to hear it canvassing um, the cities and the the entire state that was a brilliantly run campaign Mm -hmm. Um, and that's you know you wish that model would have worked every place in the country but um, New York has always been more diverse than the rest of the country (laughs) now um, this book is so just chock full of incredible information. Um, And you also cite a lot of court cases and rulings and things like that. Was it hard to do the research for this book? Did you just keep getting pulled in various different directions? (laughs) Katie, keep in mind that I've been teaching this topic for a long time. I I taught one of the first women's history classes at the high school level um, at the sort of when women's history became a field in the in the in the mid 1970s. So I've accrued a lot of information, and I like to think that I've um, I've gained some perspective about sort of balance. But your your question is point on because while there's excellent scholarship, this book relies on very little original scholarship by me, unlike my earlier book. but because, because the field is now large enough that people are writing brilliantly in, in dissertations and in, and in um, regular books that everybody can read. But I thought that there needed to be a book for the sort of general reader that you could either dip into as an appetizer or you could just see the whole thing as an entree and gobble it up. But so sort of all in one place. I hope it will prompt people to read more deeply. But so while I relied on a lot of other people's scholarship for the more recent period, I was heavily relying on newspapers. The books about our recent time have mostly been written by journalists. Historians haven't yet used that, um, those primary sources to draw even deeper conclusions. So I'm thankful that uh, all these things are available to be in Washington with the Library of Congress to, of course, have the Internet, um, to have access to so many sources. Uh, and I, you know, historians love to do the research. Uh, it's hard sometimes to pull yourself um, away. But your question about Supreme Court cases, if I could um, respond to that specifically. When you think about this as a hundred year period of time, we talked about the twenties when women had very little political clout and working through the legislature was not working very well. They begin to elect women to Congress and they begin to be in positions. A woman elected in 1922 will end up, Mary Norton from Democrat from New Jersey, will end up chairing the House um, Labor Committee in 1937-38 when the Fair Labor Standards Act passes, which is hugely important. And, and it's basically Frances Perkins, Eleanor Roosevelt, Molly Dusen, and Mary Norton. Four women get that passed. Uh, and it has had impact on labor law for the ever since then. Um, the 
the changes that come in the 40s are really more related to women being in the workforce, um, forced out of forced out of working in the depression, one one paycheck per family, if any paycheck. Um, and then the Rosies all moving into the factories and women moving into the military. That changed people's attitudes and that opened um, the fact that women were doing such visible war work then made people think, well, maybe we should be doing more things for women. Then you have the Black Civil Rights Movement really dominating the 50s, and white women are inspired by that into the 60s. Uh, so be you begin to have legislation bubbling up and uh, culminating really with um, the Equal Rights Amendment. But because Martha Griffiths managed to secure Title VII of the um, Civil Rights Act of 1964, that gave um, judges a, um, a hook to hang women's rights on. The court for a long time, despite women like Polly Murray, an African-American civil rights lawyer and others saying, you know, you could argue equal rights for women based on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, but the courts were reluctant to go there. When people are criticizing the Roe decision that why didn't they use the 14th Amendment then, it's because nobody wanted to go there. They, they were trying to narrow, find narrower hooks, smaller places to park women. Um, so the court becomes enormously important from the late 70s through the 80s. Women, um, there are lots of cases that seem minor, but jury duty is not minor. Um, being able to administer estates, issues of credit, equals of sexual harassment, um, pregnancy discrimination, all of those things percolate through the court. Many of those cases from the ACLU and directed by Ruth Bader Ginsburg before she gets to the court. But so in every era, there's sort of a different engine driving the advance of women at the same time that it's being pushed back by people who really don't want the situation to change for women or for Blacks. Did you find it difficult to weave all of the different like areas of women's history into like one narrative? Because you do talk about race and reproductive rights and employment and education and, you know, maternal health and, you know, civil rights. So it was just so much. Did you find that hard? It is hard. It's a challenge for any historian. Um, but I love the idea of, I think one of the things that draws me to history is the storytelling that this is, and, and the acknowledgement that there are lots of stories to tell. It's not just a white male narrative. Um, there have always been other stories and they weren't always told because uh, people weren't given the tools of literacy. People weren't given the freedom or the leisure or the privilege. I mean, if you're a woman in 1810, you're probably working on a farm without enough time um, to, to sit down and write a letter or to keep a journal and your family might not be prosperous enough to own the paper for you to do that. And even if you did, no one might think to save it because who are you? And even worse, if you're um, an enslaved person who doesn't have the right to be taught reading and writing, if you're a Native American whose languages are being wiped out. Um, so it's important to recover those stories. I like to think of storytelling as um, tapestry weaving, that you're pulling together lots of threads and uh, you're hoping that the front of the tapestry is a, is a, it tells a story, has a, has, a, has a recognizable representative picture, and uh, while the back might be really messy and sort of abstract because you've tied lots of things together. Um, so I'm hoping people find in this book um, good stories. 
Well, I think they definitely will. I know we really enjoyed this book. It just feels like more of a complete history, which feels really good. And it feels really apt for this day and time. And it gave us a lot of ideas for more women to cover. Oh, so sure. oh, good. Oh, good. glad to be a resource. <laughs> so where can people find you and your book and, you know, anything that you're doing? Um, soon I'll have a website, Elizabeth Griffith, PhD. Um, uh, you can pre-order the book. Um, now it comes, it, it uh, lands in your bookstore on August 2nd. Uh, but, and I, of course, recommend going to your local independent bookstore and placing a pre-order or going online. Um, I'm really hoping that this book has a big audience. And I'm so pleased that you two were interested because I think for women my age um, who remember marching and remember the day Roe was handed down and, um, you know, the Roe, well, you know now because you've read the book, the day of the Roe decision, President Johnson died. So it wasn't even the headline. It was below the fold and not, not you know, a big lead story. Um, but lots of us would remember that. So, it, so it, I think for a certain generation of women, it's autobiography. But I, uh, I really want younger women to um, appreciate and associate with these heroines. I mean, these are the postcards you need to be putting up on your wall. And, this, and I think it's terrific because so many... I know that I know um, from the books, the board books I buy for my grandchildren, that there are lots of stories about heroines from all these different backgrounds. And I just think those stories are worth repeating, not only because these were formidable women and heroic, but because the fight is not over. And uh, some of you are going to have to pick up (laughs) and uh, follow along and take leadership um, because... uh, there's more to do. When you talked about the book, ending with Amy Coney Barrett, so my, um, my editor, she said, oh, that's so depressing. <laughs> I said, right? <laughs> she said, add, add some more. So that's why I talked about the inauguration, because um, I appreciated so much that the Biden team wove in a lot of symbolism. They made reference to Alice Paul and the 1913 March before Wilson's inauguration, and the several women were white or gold or purple, and uh, the, the music was uh, resonant with um, suffrage and feminist anthems. Uh, and then, of course, ending with Amanda Gorman's um, poem, uh, really, uh, you know, democracy, if we are brave enough to keep it, and that whole um, message about uh, what's important. And I, I, I am a person who studies American history because I think democracy is an experiment worth preserving and expanding. And our history has done that. And, um, and we're not done. We have more people's rights to protect and more people to include in this experiment. We have been so excited to have you. This has been a blast. And just thank you so much. We can't wait for more people to get your book. Thank you. I had such a good time, Katie. Thank you very much.
listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.